0: Well, as we join together with our friends in the Community Life Center, I want to invite you one more time to join me in the Gospel of Luke. We are still in the Easter season and still considering Luke's account of that very first Easter Sunday. Today we come uh, to an event that happened later on that same day. We find it in the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel beginning in the 13th verse, a beautiful, powerful, And familiar story, the road to Emmaus. Let me invite you to follow along as we read together. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. And how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly Stay with us for it is nearly evening the day is almost over so he went in to stay with them when he was at the table with them he took bread gave thanks broke it and began to give it to them then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we've just read that your followers' eyes were opened to the presence of the risen Son. As he revealed the scriptures to them. We pray now, as we turn to your word, the same would happen for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, so far, the Easter story doesn't appear to be off to a great start. Last Sunday, we read Luke's account of the women who came to the tomb early on that Sunday morning and how they were the first to discover and to announce that the tomb was empty, but that discovery did not lead to an immediate celebration. Instead, it led to confusion, puzzlement, bewilderment, even some fear. The Easter story begins not in celebration, but in confusion and anxiety and perplexity. And then immediately, Luke, in his record of the events of that day, turns our attention from that episode to this story of two people who are walking from Jerusalem to their home in a place called Emmaus, still late in the day, overcome with sadness and disappointment, even though a rumor has spread that the tomb is empty And that Jesus might possibly be alive. In spite of all of that, we find them shuffling along that seven-mile road. Their faces downcast, their hearts heavy with grief. This is Easter for crying out loud. Where's the victory parade? Where's the press conference in the Rose Garden? Why still all this heaviness? Sadness. Jesus may have walked out of that tomb that morning, but it looks like he's still got some work to do. Well, like every story in Scripture, this one has a context, a background, and the more we know about that background and that context, the more we can begin to make some sense out of what's going on here. Reading between the lines, we can make and highly educated guess as to why these two disciples one named Cleopas the other whose name is not given to us why they had been in Jerusalem to begin with they had been in Jerusalem for the same reason that everybody else had been in Jerusalem and that was of course to celebrate the Passover. Passover was the grand celebration, as we've said several times in the last few weeks, that that grand celebration of that time in history centuries earlier when God had acted to free the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, and the Passover Feast was always a big deal, it was always a moment for celebration, but this year the observance of Passover had been marked with a a heightened sense of expectation and energy and excitement because a guy named Jesus was there for it. We read two weeks ago about his entrance on Palm Sunday through the crowded streets down the western slope of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and back up into the gates of the city as cheering crowds lined the streets and waved palm branches and and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that no, we aren't told this it's entirely possible that the two people we meet on the road to Emmaus had been in the crowd that day it's because word about Jesus had spread the miracles he had performed, the sermons he had preached, the authority he had demonstrated, the way he seemed to be able to challenge the life-squenching power of the religious authorities of the day. It all suggested that, that something special was happening with Jesus. There was a power at work in him that people hadn't seen before. Some people had even dared to suggest that maybe Just maybe Jesus might in fact be the long awaited Messiah, the one whom God had been promising through the prophets for centuries now that he would send to save his people. Could it be? Could he be the one? Well, the two folks we meet on the road to Emmaus that day had apparently shared in that hope. We know that because they say so directly. When they finally speak, they say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was the one in whom they had placed their trust and their hope. He was the one they believed was going to set them free. Of course, in their minds, that can only mean one thing. For someone to truly set Israel free, that person would have to come and find a way to defeat the Romans. For Israel, as pretty much for every society down throughout history, freedom can only mean one thing. It can mean political freedom, religious freedom, economic freedom. It means, in their case, getting rid of those pagans who controlled their land. It meant putting a true Israelite on the throne again. It meant allowing Israel to once again serve their God without interference and without opposition. That's what Cleopas and his unnamed companion had wanted. In fact, it's what all of Israel had wanted. So when Jesus had gone to the cross and died on that Friday afternoon... It brought about more than just the death of a friend or a respected leader. It brought about the death of a dream. Because his crucifixion could only mean one thing. It means their hopes had been misplaced. It means they had bet on the wrong horse. It meant Jesus clearly was no Messiah because no Messiah would go down in that kind of humiliating defeat. Understand that the cross was more than just a convenient way to execute criminals. It was meant by its very nature to rob that person of his last shred of humanity and dignity. It was the most humiliating way a person could die in the ancient world. And no good... Self respecting Messiah would go down like that. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, said Cleopas. If you let your imaginations do even just a little bit of work, you can hear the dejection and the disappointment and the grief in their voices. We had hoped we had hoped. Someone my family knows lost a loved one this week. He had fought valiantly but his cancer finally caught up with him and so last Sunday while we were gathering for our Easter celebrations they were calling in hospice to make these last few days as comfortable as possible. For a while there, his wife said, we honestly thought he was going to beat this thing. We really thought we were going to see a miracle. We had hoped. We had hoped. Those are the words of anyone who has ever longed for a different outcome than the one you got. You hoped for a cure for the disease For a healing of the relationship, for a recovery from the collapse, for a passing of the storm, for a changing in the circumstances. But it didn't happen. We had hoped. Such painful words to utter on Easter Sunday of all days. And yet I believe those words point us to the very place where the story of Easter starts to intersect the story of our lives. Because what Cleopas and his friend could not yet understand, or for that matter what none of Jesus' followers could yet understand. Was that Jesus had not come to give them freedom in the way they had thought? For starters, he hadn't come to rescue them from the enemy they thought they had. He wasn't interested in running the Romans out of town because it turns out the Romans weren't the true enemy, never had been. The real enemy was sin and the oppressive power that it has on our lives, and the death that it brings, both in the final moment and even while we still march through this world. Jesus knew that you could run the Romans out of town and somebody else would move in and take their place, and you would still be oppressed unless you deal with what it is that is at the heart of what holds us captive. But not only that, Jesus didn't just come to redeem them from a different enemy than the one they thought they had. He came to execute that redemption in a different way than they thought. Jesus' method of saving us was not to come and flex his divine muscles in a showing of strength and power by which he would intimidate the enemy. Rather, he came to save us. Through a display of weakness and humiliation. Jesus' very method of salvation was the cross. The cross, you see, was not an accident. It was not a tragic mistake. It's not as though God sent Jesus into the world to save us, but then something happened and the plan got brought off track and Jesus winds up on a cross, but God found a way to fix things anyway. No, the cross had been the plan all along. His purpose for coming into the world was to suffer. Jesus came not to save us from suffering, He came to save us through suffering, by suffering, in suffering. It was in the humiliation and the weakness and the death of the cross that Jesus gained his greatest victory. And Cleopas and his friend and all those others who had claimed to be followers of Jesus, who had placed their hopes in him, they couldn't yet wrap their heads or their hearts around that. Now, I will never be able, on the basis of human logic, to fully explain to you why God chose to do things that way. Clearly, God operates by a different kind of wisdom than the one you and I have. But I can tell you that I am glad He did it that way. Because saving us in the way that He did through the cross in weakness, God reveals to us just how deeply He loves this world. And I place strong emphasis on the word this world. God loves this world. This world with its brokenness and its tragic scars, its heartaches, its sorrows, its disappointments. God loves this world. God didn't come to love a fantasy world. God didn't enter into a make-believe world where everything always works out fine god didn't save the world by telling us a disney story where right always prevails and where the guy and the girl always ride off into the sunset together to live happily ever after no jesus came into this world this world with its ugliness and its pain And it's brokenness and he did so as unlikely as it may seem by taking all of that ugliness and that pain and that brokenness. Namely by taking all of that sin upon himself and carrying it to the cross. Jesus loves this world in its brokenness and he does it by entering into that brokenness. Last Sunday morning, I left home before dawn, way before dawn, to come and start preparing for our sunrise service. I won't say how early, I will say that my cup of coffee was asking for a cup of coffee. (laughs) I had not even backed my vehicle out of the garage though before I was already hearing news reports of those church bombings in Sri Lanka. The news was still fresh and raw and there was a lot that wasn't yet known, but the reported death toll at that early hour already stood somewhere around 100 people. We now know that it was roughly triple that. That news was running through my head as I was stumbling around in the darkness trying to get ready to celebrate an Easter sunrise service. Some of my thoughts were on the service we were getting ready to have, but a big part of my brain was asking myself, what good is a resurrected Jesus if he can't even protect his followers from worshiping him on Easter Sunday in a sanctuary of all places? You know what the word sanctuary means? It means place of refuge, place of protection. They were in a sanctuary on Easter Sunday. My friends, I can't even begin to explain that to you. There are no easy answers for why that sort of senseless violence happens in our world. And I can understand why Cleopas and others like him would look at the cross and see nothing but a cause for grief and sadness. But I can also say this with certainty. It matters greatly that the one who was called forth from the grave on that first Easter Sunday is the same one who was crucified on Friday. The one who was resurrected is the same one who suffered. You see, a Messiah who manages to steer clear around all of the brokenness and the suffering and the tragedy and the violence. That kind of Messiah isn't going to be of much use to us, but a Messiah who is willing to plunge headlong into all of that, who takes all of that upon himself and yet who still emerges victorious on the other side of it now that is a messiah who can save those of us who live in the real world and that is why i am glad the good doctor luke included this story in his gospel account because it's it's stories like this one that keep the resurrection real and relevant to our lives You see, if the resurrection was just some made-up story about a a hero figure that, that overcame his enemies, if this was just a fictional tale that we were crafting from out of nothing, we would probably write it differently. For one thing, I personally, I'd have Jesus busting out of that tomb on a Sunday morning with crowds of people looking on so there could never be any doubt as to what happened. And then I'd have him march down the halls of Roman power and kick in doors and bust the heads of everybody who played a role in his death. And then I'd have the Jewish leadership. And I think I'd have Bruce Willis playing the part of Jesus You know, while we're at it. Then I'd have all the Jewish leadership falling at his feet and acknowledging that he really was the Son of God. I'd write the story in such a way that there could never be any doubt who this guy was. And then finally I'd have him gather all of his followers together and watch as they marched down the road into the sunset to live happily ever after. But that's not the way the story goes. In a private moment shared only with his heavenly father Jesus came out of that tomb in the pre-dawn hours with nobody there to see it. Then he completely bypassed The Romans who had executed him and the Jewish leadership who had conspired against him. He bypassed all of them and went directly to, and in many cases imperceptibly to, his still very confused followers. And He did it all in such a way that even with the resurrection in play, there's still sadness and disappointment and confusion and hardship to confront. Because once these disciples finally do figure out that this is Jesus and that He really is alive, well, it's just about that time that Jesus turns them around and marches them back out into the same world that had crucified Him. Far from protecting them from any further danger, Jesus exposes them to more of it. History tells us that of the 11 remaining disciples, after Judas went out and hanged himself, all but one would go on to die as martyrs for the faith. Even the resurrection doesn't stop all evil in its track. Because Easter doesn't happen in some faraway fantasy world. It happens here in this world. This world where sometimes people get sick and where sometimes plans fail and where sometimes dreams die. And where sometimes evil still makes its presence known. Easter happens in the real world. My world. Your world. This world. course the good news and the reason we continue to turn to this story 2000 years later is that the story does not end with Cleopas and his companion standing there looking down at the road in disappointment and grief that's how Jesus finds them but he doesn't leave them that way using the Scriptures and the broken bread of fellowship, Jesus begins to explain to them what has happened, and then He slowly reveals Himself to them. Now, I want you to notice something very important here. Jesus is already walking with these two followers even before they know it. They haven't yet recognized Him. But Jesus is still there with them. In spite of the tragedy and the sorrow and the disappointment, Jesus is not absent from them. Jesus is there with them, walking that road, matching their steps stride for stride. What is needed is for them to have their eyes opened, so that they can recognize the presence of this One who is with them and who has been with them all along. And so by turning their minds to the Scriptures and by sharing with them the bread of fellowship, Jesus shows them that even in the face of what they thought was a moment of loss, even then... Jesus is there. There will certainly come a moment when all of us will find ourselves walking that same road. Scholars tell us that that we've never been able to identify with certainty where the village of Emmaus is. But I would argue that we all know where it is and that sooner or later we all go there. Sooner or later we all encounter something that, that kills a dream or a hope or a plan or a desire that was deep within us. And when that moment comes and we find ourselves walking that long road, we will wonder if we are by ourselves. But what we will come to discover if we can have our eyes opened Is that there's another set of footprints matching ours. Trudging along with us. How does that happen? Where do we get the reassurance? What are the resources available to us to open our eyes to the presence of the risen one? They are the same two resources that Jesus used with Cleopas and his unnamed companion on that day. First, Jesus uses... The Scriptures. What does it say that he did first? He took them back through the Scriptures. Beginning with Moses, and he began to walk them through the story one more time. The story that they thought they already knew so well. And he used the story of Scripture to reveal to them how it had to be this way. How this was not actually... uh, A detour around God's plan, but was actually the very unfolding of God's plan. He still does the same with us today through those same scriptures. The Bible, we say, is the authoritative word of God. It is the true written record of God's revelation of Himself to us in Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, the Bible takes precedence over internal emotions or private experiences or subjective moods. Depending on what's going on in our lives or in the world around us at any given moment, there will be days when we will feel God's presence and then there will be days and sometimes entire seasons when we do not. And while those feelings are real and they have to be dealt with honestly, Scripture reminds us that those feelings are not the final word on whether Jesus is with us or not. Think for a moment of a marriage bond. This August, my wife Heather and I will have been married 22 years. And I can honestly tell you that I've learned over these two plus decades that emotions come and emotions go. There are times when we feel emotionally close to each other and there are times when we do not. And I'm not airing our dirty laundry, I'm telling you what every married person in the sound of my voice already knows to be true. But even in those challenging times when the feelings are hard to come by, even then we are still fully married to each other. We are no less husband and wife in those moments than we are in any other and i know right now what you're thinking boy this guy is a hopeless romantic but you see our marriage is an objective reality not an emotion It is a reality that is bound up in a formal covenant that carries legal, moral, and spiritual weight. And that covenant is not dissolved because in a given moment we happen not to be feeling a certain thing. The same thing is true when it comes to the presence of Christ in our lives. Remember, Jesus was already walking with these two even when they did not know it. But once Jesus turned them to the Scriptures, then they could begin to see how the cross was actually the necessary centerpiece of their salvation. So it is with us. When we find ourselves walking that long road to Emmaus, feeling alone and dejected, it is the Scriptures first and foremost that point us to the risen Christ. It is the Bible which tells us that not even a sealed tomb can keep Jesus from getting to us. We know Jesus is with us in those moments, not because we feel it, but because he says so the other resource Jesus continues to use to reveal his presence to us on that road to Emmaus it is the bread of Christian fellowship The way Luke tells us this story, there seems to be a direct connection that he is drawing between the events of this moment and the sharing of the Lord's Supper. Luke says that Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And those are almost the identical words that we use whenever we share in the Lord's Supper. But understand this, the Lord's Supper is a formalized version of something that is always true, and it is that the church is the body of Christ. We know that because it says so in Scripture. We don't share the Lord's Supper as private individuals. We share it as co-members of the fellowship of believers, and that fellowship holds even when we are not gathered formally around the Lord's table and so Jesus uses the fellowship of believers to reveal himself to us there are multiple ways that the church functions as the body of Christ there is for example this aggregate collection of the various spiritual gifts that we are given it says in the scriptures that we're not all given the same gifts And no individual among us has given all the gifts that are necessary for the church to do its ministry. And so therefore, by definition, the church needs one another to carry out the work of the kingdom. There is the importance of Christian accountability. And which we, through our very presence in one another's lives, hold one another accountable to the truths of the gospel. There is the absolute necessity of the ministry of encouragement through which we lift one another up and provide strength to one another. There is the provision of authentic companionship. I think the church is the truest fulfillment of God's declaration in the book of Genesis when he says that it is not good for man to be alone. And if we had more time this morning, we could take any one of those elements of the fellowship of believers and we could explore it in greater detail. But here's the critical point. Those two dejected, disappointed, disheartened, grieving followers of Jesus who thought everything had been lost, they did not see Jesus among them until they broke bread together. It was at the table, at fellowship with one another, that their eyes were fully opened. And they recognized that the one who had been following them all along was actually the one who had been leading them all along. And so if we can begin to look at one another If we can begin to recognize the face of God in the face of one another. If we can begin to recognize the body of Christ in the body of Christ. We will begin to see that even in those moments when Jesus feels a million miles away. Even in those times when life lets us down. Even when grief and sorrow and heartache come our way. Even then jesus is among us and we only need to look to one another to see it easter doesn't change the fact that we still live in a fallen world easter sunday is one of my favorite moments of the year it's full of energy and excitement and as a pastor it's hard not to be excited to see a church full of smiling people celebrating and singing about the resurrection. But the hard part about Easter Sunday is that it ends. And usually the next day you get up and discover that the world still looks pretty much the same it did before Sunday. The world's still broken. Still weighed down by tragedy and heartache and, and disappointments. And so the empty tomb does not mean that there will never again be sorrow struggle heartache but Easter does mean that there is one who has gone through the crucible of suffering and has emerged victorious on the other side and who now promises to be present with us in our struggles this morning we have turned our attention to the scriptures And then a little bit later, in just a few moments, we will go out and break bread with each other. I'm willing to bet this morning that if we will open our eyes, we will find that the risen one is among us. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you this morning in all of our brokenness and our heartache. We come to you acknowledging that there's still so much about our lives and about our world that isn't what we want it to be. And yet we give you thanks that you are with us even still. Lift up the brokenhearted this morning, O God. Bind up the wounded. Encourage the downcast. Strengthen the feeble. And point us all to the presence of the risen one. Who walks with us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. I have no way of knowing what individual struggles each of you brings here today I can imagine that there are many of you who this morning find that that Cleopas and his unnamed companion on the road to Emmaus are a stand-in for you because there's something about life that isn't what you had hoped it would be the risen Christ is here And if you feel a need to make a response to that, to be open to that in a way that you weren't before you came into this room this morning, then as we close out our worship this morning, I want to offer you the chance to respond to that. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and acknowledged Him as Lord, then I would just ask you to come forward as we sing in a moment. We'll celebrate as you begin that journey. If you're needing to connect with a church home and find a body of believers to be fellowship to you we want to offer that to you if there's anything else you need to make public i'll be here but but there is something all of us need to be doing this morning to see the risen christ among us i pray that will happen as we worship him let's stand and sing together